I'm to speak tonight on the theme of the resurrection. But I'm going to really call it the link of the resurrection in a life-changing story. Because it doesn't hang on its own. It comes in sequence on some very critical forerunners, both in personages and in the storyline. And I think it was important because every time this question came up, with even Jesus on the Emmaus Road, rather than just going to it and showing them that he was indeed the resurrected Christ, he goes back across history, putting one link into another. They were so overwhelmed with what he had just finished telling them that they invited him for dinner. He feigned as, he was, as if he was leaving, and they said, why don't you stay and have dinner? And when he broke that bread, their eyes were suddenly open, and they said, did not our hearts burn within, within us? When Stephen is about to be martyred, he goes through the whole historic process of one link into another. When Nehemiah and Ezra return in the Old Testament days after the exile, they too retrace this whole thing historically. So the gospel narrative is a story, and this was that the final link after the incarnation, and of course, we all look forward to that ultimate day of consummation when we are in his eternal presence. Before I read the scriptures for you, I want to tell you a little uh, funny anecdote here. Again, if the gentleman is here, you can translate it into Spanish. You probably already have. Uh, you know the story of Sherlock Holmes and Watson on a camping trip? I'm sure you've heard it. So these boys are on a camping trip and had plenty of liquid refreshment and went soundly asleep on this bright, starry night. In the middle of the night, Holmes awakened and looked up into the night sky, and he dug his elbow into Watson's ribs, and he said, Watson, Watson, wake up. What do you see? He looked up and he said, stars and stars and more stars. He said, what does that tell you, Watson? He said, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, it tells me that it's about quarter to three in the morning. Meteorologically, it tells me that tomorrow will probably be a beautiful day. Theologically, it tells me we're just a tiny part of the great whole. Why, Holmes, what does it tell you? He says, Watson, you idiot, somebody has stolen our tent. Have you ever heard all these big sounding words? These extraordinary words that people with no hope, no meaning, no foundation for life actually use to try to soothe our consciences. Maybe that's why they even sometimes lapse into verbiage that they really ought to be careful about. Richard Dawkins was not too long ago with the former dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, who himself, by the way, happened to be a liberal man, but they were debating this issue. And as they were in the middle, in the middle of the debate, uh, Dawkins was making fun of Christians. He said, most of them probably couldn't name the Gospels for you. So the former dean looked at him and said, Richard, your favorite book is Darwin's Origin of Species, isn't it? He said, yes. He said, could you name the full title for me? Dawkins says, yeah, I, I know, it's so long a title. 
Dean said, go ahead, go ahead. Name it for me. And Dawkins pauses and says, uh, the origin of species, um, um, oh my God, says he. <laughs> I hated to even repeat it, but this was live on the BBC. <laughs> Couldn't think of it, and so the ultimate evidence of the sovereignty of God is that even when somebody who doesn't believe in him calls upon him to remind him of the book in which he started to believe that he didn't exist. <laughs> quite amazing, quite amazing how these things happen. But here it is when we deal with the, with the notion and the reality of the resurrection and the whole gospel story, I'm going to present to you three links the first two are so important, and then they link into the third on the resurrection. But for the atheist, he will deny, or he or she will deny all three. Why? Because they are against the miraculous. Naturalism has to explain everything. For the religionist of various spiritual worldviews, they will definitely deny at least one, if not two of them. The Christian affirms all of these, all three of them, and they are vitally important links in the storyline of the gospel. I've been in the ministry now exactly as long as R.C. has been, 40 years. And I can honestly tell you, the longer I am in this, and the more I'm privileged to defend it, even in front of some of the most hostile audience of the world, I'm more convinced than ever that we have the most beautiful story to tell, and a story that is rooted in truth and relevance, the twin feet on which we must always carry the wings of the gospel here. Beautifully reminding people of how we can soar with it, but when we land, we touch the feet with both ground, truth and relevance. Here's Paul in Acts 17. I've got three passages, I will read two of them. Acts 17, Luke 24, and 1 Corinthians 15. Luke 17, verse 24. The, I'm sorry, Acts 17 and verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gave all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by God's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Between the bookends of creation and the resurrection, he tells the story how God ordained all of this. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, in that beautiful passage, 
which he received, a creed that was already in existence. And even profound critical scholars like Pannenberg or Fuller will say to you that no more than three to eight years had passed when Paul received this creed. It had been in existence even before him. So this is what he says. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Powerful passage of scripture here in 1 Corinthians 15, that descriptive passage of what the resurrection is all about and the particulars. So we move then between these three links as we get to the final thoughts of tonight's message. The first thing I want to remind you of this is that we are told according to the scriptures prior to the resurrection story that God is the author of human essence. God is the author in the essential nature of our humanity. We didn't come into being by accident. We just didn't suddenly appear unconceived or without any purpose in mind, but that God himself is the designer and brought us into existence. The psalmist says, when I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the sun and the moon and the stars which you have made, what is there in man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? This fact of our creation is a vital source in enabling us to understand what it means to be human. It's a vital source giving us the generality of our essence created in the image of God. <coughs> Some of you have probably heard me mention this simple conversation between Jesus and the one who was questioning him, trying to pit him against uh, the Caesar. And he looked at Jesus and he said, is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? The one question I wish so desperately Jesus had answered differently. <laughs> then on April 15th, you could be godly and rebellious at the same time. <laughs> Jesus so brilliant in his response, he says, give me a coin. And he took the coin and he says, whose image do you see on this? The man says, Caesar. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The disingenuousness of the questioner is noticed in the fact that he did not come back with a second question. He should have said, what belongs to, Caesar, what belongs to God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Give to God that which belongs to God. God's image is on you. But no, the naturalists who tell us they will debunk the notion of the resurrection because it is a miraculous intervention in the normal processes of, of life and death 
will also tell you they do not need God to explain the origin of the universe or God to explain the creation of us divine entities. And yet if you read the scientists again and again, you'll see how they end up with systemic, ideological, and philosophical contradiction. And scientists themselves, disgusted with the approach of sheer, rugged, natural, and natural naturalism, unvarnished, are beginning to realize how undefendable this really is. David Berlinsky, who doesn't have a dog in this fight here, he's not a believer. In fact, he is an avowed skeptic. But when Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion, David Berlinsky responded with his devil's delusion. And on the inside flap of the cover, he says this, has anyone provided a proof for God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought, close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt dead on? This is Berlinsky. Now, I have a reason for taking you through this route. And then the first point, you're going to really have to put your thinking caps on here. What is the reason they deny the resurrection? Because it is an extra natural, it is a supernatural intervention in the normal affairs of people. What is the reason they deny the creation uh, story? Same, same facts that they supposedly bring to bear. Now notice where they end up in their own convoluted philosophizing. You see, there are really four fundamental laws in nature that they wrestle with law of gravity, the electromagnetic field, and the strong and the weak nuclear forces. The law of gravity, the electromagnetic field, the strong and the weak nuclear forces. They have to bring these together in some uh, permutation and combination to explain how the universe even came into being. Now notice how the astronomers and how the physicists have wrestled with the conundrums. Here, for example, is Sir Frederick Hoyle, along with Chandra Vikramasinghe, uh, who is a Sri Lankan uh, scientist. Listen to what they say. In calculating the odds that all the functional proteins necessary for life might form in one place by random events, they come up with this figure of one chance in 10 to 40,000 of how these proteins can all come together. These are skeptics, Hoyle and Vikramasinghe. That's one followed by 40,000 zeros after it. One in one followed by 40,000 zeros. But then he goes on to say this, however, since there are only 10 to the power of 80 atoms in the entire known universe, and the chance of this happening is one in, the, in, the, uh, in 10 to 40,000, they've concluded in these words, it is an outrageously small probability 
that could not be faced even if the whole universe consisted of organic soup. Now notice the next comment Hoyle makes. Life could not have originated here on Earth, nor does it look as though biological evolution can be explained from within an Earth-bound theory of life. Genes from outside this Earth are needed to drive the evolutionary process. This much can be consolidated by strictly scientific means, by experiment, by observation, and calculation. What he's saying is, there is no way on Earth for this to have produced what we have. So what does he conclude? He goes with the panspermia theory. Do you know what that is? Spores were brought from another planet to seed the earth in order to, that's Sir Frederick Hoyle. All right, Stephen Hawking, listen to what he says. Why did the universe start out with so nearly the critical rate of expansion that separates models that recollapse from those that go on expanding forever? so that even now, 10 billion years later, it is still expanding at nearly the precise critical rate. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in one quintillion, by one part in quintillion, I'm translating it from the British uh, million, which is different to the US here, so he comes out here, by one part in a thousand million million, which is one US quintillion, I think, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached the present state. So then he goes on to say this, even if there is only one possible unified theory, it would still be a set of rules and equations. What is it that breeds fire into these equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe, and why does the universe go to, go to all the bother of existing at all? What place do we then have for a creator? Hawking, okay. Francis Crick, listen. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge of avail available to us, can only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment, listen, to be almost a miracle. <laughs> so many other conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Prominent physicist James Treffel, and this I'll close that thought, in his book Are We Alone in the Universe, says this, if I were a religious man, I would say that everything we have learned about life in the past 20 years shows that we are unique and therefore special in God's sight. If I were a religious man, that's what I would say. Instead, I shall say that what we have learned shows us that it matters a great deal what actually happens to us. So here you've got it. Hoyle, Hawking, Francis Crick, who got the Nobel Prize for cracking the code of the DNA, and James Treffel coming out with one of two extremes, one saying mathematically impossible to explain, the other saying panspermia, and by the way, Francis Crick believes the same thing, that uh, spores were brought from another planet to sow the seeds right here in our earth. And as for James Treffel, he said, if I were a religious man, I'd have no problem explaining this, but I'll just say it matters an awful lot what is going to happen to us. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? That's what I believe is the first link that we get in the generality of creation and in the particularity 
of human life. I move quickly. First, we've got the story of how we have the created order that God is the author of human essence. Second, we have God the redeemer in human existence. God is the redeemer in human existence. For what we watch here now is the story of brokenness and the story of fallenness and the story of the despicable nature of sin. You know, I marvel at how many stories we read in our newspaper again and again and again. The evil that we read about, the tragedies that we read about. I did a little write-up on Newtown after the tragedy took place, as many people did. I'm sure many of you did, blogged on it, commented on it. What do you do? You're silenced. In fact, got a call asking you I would come there and do some meetings. I said, give it some time. These kinds of wounds are very painful. Having been at Columbine sometime after it happened, also at Virginia Tech after it happened, I've always wanted time to provide a real means of God's healing process. But I think of all the discussions that have taken place, the one big question that is always unaddressed in this, you see, it took three things to do that killing. It took a young man, it took a gun, and it took some ammunition. We like to talk about the young man, probably with all of his psychological problems. And in lawmakers, we like to deal with a weapon. How can we bring this all to an end by just removing that kind of weaponry? And I'm not minimizing either. All of these have to be discussed. They are vital in a civilized society. We deal with it. But we make an extraordinary mistake when we think that the only thing that provided the ammunition was the bullet that he used. Have you ever thought of the ammunition that goes into the minds of our young people today in front of the television set? Have you ever thought of the ammunition that sophisticated academics pour into young lives by destroying their belief in the value of human life and its essence? Have you ever thought of all the ammunition that goes on with the perversion that pours into your thinking and mind day after day after day? No, we'd rather deal with the obvious, the physical sight of a weapon. We don't deal with the reality of what it means to be depraved within the human heart and how we can find an answer to that. You see, here's the thing I want to say to you. The same week that we witnessed Newtown in that horrific atrocity. Another atrocity was played out in the city in which I'd made my home for many, many years, where I was raised in the city of New Delhi, India, where six thugs got onto a bus. They had no gun, they had no bullets, they just took some iron rods and staffs and poles and battered a young woman, a young woman to a point that she was so brutalized and plundered in her body that no hospital in India found within itself the resources to mend her body. They flew her to Singapore, and within a few days she lost her life. And the man she was with, I forget whether he passed away or what, he too was bludgeoned. Five ordinary village-type people with no gun, with no bullets, ravaged a young woman like that, a beautiful young woman preparing to study psychotherapy, sent to an early grave. 
the depravity of the human mind. You know, my wife wanted so much to be here, and uh, we've been through a tough 10 days. I'd gone to Australia and come back and finished some meetings, and she had gone to represent me for some board meetings in Singapore and India. The first time we were back together after three weeks, it was a week ago Sunday, and Margie and I were packing some boxes, preparing to move, and she got up on a small stepladder, and I was in a room, other room, putting some of my books in or whatever, when I suddenly heard this crash and a scream. And she came crashing back, and when I walked in, it's a sight I'll never forget. She was just staring glassy-eyed into the ceiling, and her arm was just completely limp. And I just burst into tears and bent down, couldn't move her body. She said, please don't, don't touch this arm, something's happened. And I called the paramedics and all of them and took them about 30 minutes, first giving some morphine to kill the pain, and then 30, 40 minutes to get her onto a stretcher. It was a complete clean fracture of the humerus, upper right humerus. You know what happens when your bone's broken? I had a broken back at one time. You can will all you want to will, and you cannot move that extremity. You can want to make all the decisions you desire, and she couldn't move that arm and still is in trouble with it, probably for some weeks, if not some months to come. Is that not an indication of what happens when the soul has ruptured and broken and fallen away from God? You can will all you want to will. You cannot rescue yourself. You cannot redeem yourself. So the story of creation is linked directly into the story of redemption, and both of them take a miraculous intervention. Both of them. So those who deny the miracle of the resurrection are forced to deny the miracle of the new birth. Remember a long time ago, not a long time, but a couple of years ago, maybe even less than that, a book was written that ought never to have been written, which was called Love Wins. And one of the statements, I don't like to criticize people's writing, but I remember when I came to this line in there, I put it down and I said, my word. When he made the comment that nowhere in the New Testament there's a talk about receiving Jesus Christ into your life as your savior. So, you, know. you know what, folks? I came to know Jesus Christ when I was 17 years old on a bed of suicide. All the willing I'd done for 17 years had just ended up me in a complete and ended me up in a complete mess. And I'm an apologist. We argue from here and find the bridge to here from the head to the heart. We do it all the time. But I'll tell you what, no matter what arguments are presented to me at the end of the day, I know in whom I believed. I know who's redeemed me. I know the divine encounter and what happened to me in that hospital room. I know the transformation that took place, the new hungers, the new loves, the new desires, the new passions. All of these came by divine intervention. It was a miraculous intervention of God himself into my life just as he's intervened in yours. And until we understand that it really takes a supreme intervention of God himself to overcome the dastardliness of evil, the inclinations of the heart, until we understand that, 
We can just sort of stop short with one idea of the miraculous, either in the creation or in the resurrection. We will lose sight of one of the greatest down payments of the ultimate resurrection, which happens right now as God brings new birth within you and brings that dead soul to life, as it were, bringing the new life into you. This society does not understand evil. That's why it does not understand the miraculous power needed for the new birth. Adolf Eichmann, when he went to trial, I remember being in Yad Vashem in Jerusalem when I was doing a research for one of my books and the people took me in and showed me reams and reams of material. And in fact, there were young people going through the entire manuscript and the, and the transcripts of the Eichmann trial and a lot of it fascinating to read how he was uh, brought in by the Mossad from Argentina in a cloak and dagger operation that's told in the book The House on Garibaldi Street and ultimately put into a film. How the intelligence so brilliantly operated and Peter Malkin was at the helm of it all and brought them, brought uh, Eichmann back in a brilliant maneuver and took him back to Israel for his trial. And Hannah Arendt of all people writes the book on the trial and execution of Eichmann, and her book ends with this paragraph. Adolf Eichmann went to the gallows with great dignity. He asked for a bottle of red wine and drank half of it. He refused the help of the Protestant minister, the Reverend William Hull, who offered to read the Bible with him. He had only two more hours to live, and therefore no time to waste. He walked the 50 yards from his cell to the execution chamber, calm and erect, with his hands bound behind him. When the guards tied his ankles and knees, he asked them to loosen the bonds so that he could stand straight. I don't need that, he said. And when the black hood was offered him, he was in complete command of himself. Nay, he was more. He was completely himself. Nothing could have demonstrated this more convincingly than the grotesque silliness of his last words. He began by stating emphatically that he was no Christian and did not believe in life after death. He then proceeded, after a short while, gentlemen, we shall all meet again, such is the fate of all of us men. Long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria. I shall not forget them. In the face of death, he had found the cliche used in funeral oratory. Under the gallows, his memory played him the last trick. He was elated and he forgot really that this was his own funeral. It was as though those last minutes he was summing up the lesson that this long course in human wickedness had taught us, the lesson of the fearsome word and thought-defying banality of evil. You trivialize evil. You trivialize the new birth. You trivialize the new birth. You will ultimately trivialize the created order. And these two links in the mind of the Apostle Paul were absolutely critical as he led to the resurrection. That God is the one who is really the creator of our human essence. He is also the redeemer of us in our human existence. And then he leads us to that final of all truths here. He tells us how God is really the hope from death's dominance. God is our ultimate hope from death's dominance. Defines our essence, redeems us in our existence, and gives us the hope against death's dominance. I want you to follow me very closely now because I'm bringing this all down to the tip of the funnel here, the lower end of it. What is the resurrection all about? 
how do we know that it really happened? See, once upon a time, the swoon theory, the hallucination theory, the fraud theory, and the stolen body theory, all of that took their turns and made their rounds. Swoon theory? that changed the disciples from a bunch of frightened Boy Scouts, as it were, to be willing to be martyrs, where 11 out of the 12 died a martyr's death? Hallucination, where psychiatrists will tell you hallucination is sort of a single individual's experience, not with 500 of them hallucinating at the same time. As Karl Barth said, all you listen, all you need to do is listen to them arguing against each other and they decimate each other's arguments. Barth was right in that. I want to give you what classic arguments are given, 10 of them, for the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I will close by adding two more links to that. So here they are. Number one, the disciples eyewitness experience where they saw and felt and touched. They saw, felt, and touched. I come from India. My father was from Kerala. My mother was from Chennai. I was raised in Delhi. Kerala is in the deep south, Delhi is in the north. Kerala has a little town called Kodangalur. It is the place where the Apostle Thomas first set foot on Indian soil. There is a huge amount of extra-biblical material available on this. I researched it, I picked it up from people like the Venerable Bede to other well-known patristic fathers and so on who testify to Thomas going there. The oldest church in India is called the Martoma Church, named after him, after Thomas. And I ask you, why would a man have done what he did and paid with his spear-thrusted side because he said he would not believe until he saw and felt and touched and the eyewitness of Thomas's as he knelt and felt that side, my Lord and my God, the transformation of Thomas. Why did 11 out of the 12 disciples die a martyr's death? And by the way, Thomas Aquinas makes a vitally important point here about these martyrdoms. He said they all died alone. They died alone. This is not 12 or 50 or 60 of them in one room all of a sudden deciding to come up with a, with a theory and a story and being gutted by flames. Peter crucified upside down. Paul stoned on the Appian Way. And here Thomas on Indian soil being speared to death. There's a memorial to his death to this very day. They died alone. They weren't looking for some great uh, celebration on the outside and some cheering. They were, they were murdered and slaughtered in so many different ways. And they paid for this. Think of all things of the vision of Peter who even after seeing the transfiguration, a sight given to just three of them. So profound was the transfiguration experience where he said, let's stay right here. I don't want to leave, leave here. 
Even after that, he went on and denied his Lord. Then he says, but now we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to heed that as a light in a dark place. What Peter is, what's happened to Peter is a remarkable transformation. And I suggest to you that he saw Moses. He saw Elijah. It took the resurrected Christ to transform this man. So number one, you see the disciples as eyewitnesses. Number two, the early proclamation of the resurrection. So powerful. These documents are so powerful. You know, a few years ago, I was in Tirana in Albania. I just finished speaking at the parliament and then spent about an hour with President Berisha. Fascinating conversation, which I won't betray to you. But after that, uh, the curator of the museum said, I really want you to come to the museum, please. I said, I'm very tired this afternoon. I've got to do an open forum at your university. He said, please come. I'll give you something of a treat you'll never forget in your life. I promise you. And I was a guest, and I told my videographer, Bob, I said, why don't you go with me? I'm, you know, I'm tired, but let's go. We went, and they were surrounded by all kinds of militia. I wondered where we'd come. And I walked into the room, all guards around the room, and uh, people packing an auditorium. And he takes me in, and he introduces me in their language, and then he turns to me in English and says, will you please repeat the message you gave to the members of parliament this morning? So I looked at him and said, I thought you were going to give me a surprise and a treat I'd never forget. He said, it'll come, just speak. I did it in about 20 minutes, and then we sat down. All of a sudden come three or four guards, with their arms outstretched like that, all of them wearing blue gloves. And one man, one man following them with blue gloves in their hand, places one in front of Bob Tiger, my videographer, and myself. And they place these volumes in front of me. The four Gospels, written in gold ink by the hand of St. Chrysostom. In the 400s, Ceausescu tried to burn them. Somebody hid them. And what you ended up as a result, preserved, perfect, perfectly justified. Why did men like that preserve these documents willing to risk their entire life for you and for me? The, gospel, the early proclamation of the resurrection with the documents, three, their transformation from fear to martyrdom is remarkable. Number four, the empty tomb. Number five, they proclaimed it in Jerusalem itself, where it all happened. Number six, no contrary evidence when those would have desperately wanted to prove it wrong. All they would needed to have done is produce the body. Instead, Rome itself bent its knee to the message, the power of all that was happening. Seven, the existence of the church founded by law-abiding monotheistic Jews. Eight, the change of the day of worship to Sunday. Nine, the conversion of James. Ten, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Number one, eyewitness experiences. 
Number two, early proclamation of the resurrection. Number three, transformation of the disciples from fear to martyrdom. Four, the empty tomb. Five, they proclaimed it in Jerusalem itself, right where it happened. Six, no contrary evidence when, they, that, when those who wanted to prove it wrong would desperately have wanted to produce it. Seven, the existence of the church founded by law-abiding monotheistic Jews. Eight, the change of the day of worship to Sunday. Nine, the conversion of James. Ten, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I've already spoken to you about Peter and Thomas. Can I add just one more? Why on earth would they have first put the evidence in the mouths of women? <laughs> tell me. Tell me. In a society where their word would not have counted in court. So if anybody is scheming this thing up, Anybody is trying to create a scenario that would be the last place they would have gone to find authority. It's just like my Lord, just like my Lord, who take those that the world was marginalizing, just like my Lord on the cross, to look at the young man and point to his mother and say, take care of her. She's your mother now. And then he comes into the garden and appears to the women and says, you go and tell the disciples and you go and tell Peter, these boys weren't ready for this kind of a primary source. <laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Something else. Why would he have said he was going to bodily rise again when he could have hoodwinked them like other Eastern mystics and said, I'll spiritually rise again? How do you ever falsify something like that? How do you falsify it? Say, he's spiritually risen. He said he would bodily rise again. You know, I'm not kidding you when I tell you this. Take these 10 to 12 to 13 evidences and put it together and try and then defend the swoon theory, the fraud theory, fraud theory the stolen theory. And uh, I think Spong came up with what dogs ate the body and the book came out, Spong was wrong. Anything Spong believes, I don't know where he comes up with. I think he lies in bed at night wondering what weird idea can I come up with tomorrow morning. All these other theories. And I love what the Apostle Paul says. He says, and to me, the least of all, he says, one abnormally born. You know what he's talking about? One dragged out of the womb, unwilling to come out. And he goes and writes for us one third of the New Testament and changes history as it was known then. And he says this, different to all the other disciples, that I may know him power of his resurrection that I may know him the powers of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death follow me every other disciple came the other way through the cross to the resurrection he came the reverse way from the resurrection to the cross that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Let me take you back. Creation. 
the general value of you as an essential person, the particularity of you as an individual. You see, many humans die every day. We can't mourn for all, but God gives us those special relationships when we lose someone close to us, that particularity of that person becomes important for us to know whether the resurrection idea really is true and the fact of the resurrection is historically tenable because then we'll see this loved one again, the hope. And then we go through the redemption who brought the miracle of new birth into you and to me. From the miracle of creation to the miracle of the redemption to the miracle of the resurrection. Follow me carefully here. What goes on with the skeptic here? Please follow me. I don't know why I think up these things, but I do. You know, my wife and I celebrated 40 years of marriage last year. If salvation were by works, she will get to heaven just for having lived with me for 40 years. But thank God, <laughs> we'll get there by grace. Here's what I want to say to you. When it comes to natural law, the skeptic invokes the natural law as an absolute and will not allow for the miracle because it's an exception. He wants the absoluteness of that which is routine, repetitive, and will deny anything that is an exception because it invades his preconceived notions. So he holds on to the absolute in the created order and denies the miracle because it's an exception. When it comes to moral reasoning, he reverses that. He takes the exception in order to argue against what's normative. That alone ought to tell you what these boys are all about. They want an end game in sight. They want to get to the end without God. And so when it's convenient, they'll hold on to an exception. When it's inconvenient, they will deny an exception. So in the created order, they hold on to the absolute, deny the exception. On moral reasoning, they hold on to the exception to deny the absolute. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. I was with a professor of law of a very prestigious university. I'll close with that, end up with a couple of illustrations here, and I'll be through. If I named him or the position he held, all of you will know what I'm whom I'm talking about. But I was having coffee with him for one hour, total skeptic, before I lectured. It was not long ago. He said, you know, Ravi, when I was young, I had all the aspirations, and I was very conservative in my thinking, my values, my beliefs. Then I got into university and got everything the way I wanted it to go, and I became extremely liberal and jettisoned all my absolutes, and I became the chief legal counselor, and he named the person for whom he was the legal counsel. He said, you and I are sitting across this table now, you're in your 60s, I'm approaching 70. He said, I'm back to my conservative way of thinking and wondered where all the years went that I squandered in debunking absolutes and debunking all those notions. He said, you know, friend, I want to tell you something. If there is an answer, I'm coming more and more to the conviction it'll have to be in Jesus Christ. I know of no other. He writes to me. He writes to my colleague in Oxford, John Lennox. Why? Why? I'm now a grandfather. We have one little grandson. I spoke to him on the phone today. He's 19 months old. 
Ai Papa, Ai Papa, Ai Papa. It costs a nickel and a half to just keep listening to that, but it's fun. <laughs> and I watch him walking around and I think to myself, why am I enjoying this so much? I had three. What's the difference? I think there's a difference. You know what the difference is? You have a stock of emotional energy available at any given day. When you have your own, you're spending all of that in care, responsibility, worry, provision, all that kind of stuff. You've got very little left to really enjoy it. Now when it comes second time around, somebody else is spending all the emotional energy on running around doing this and this. You've got all of this energy to enjoy it. When he was born, I happened to literally arrive as she was being taken to the hospital. I got to the hospital and saw the first sight of the baby coming and being placed on the mother's breast. My little daughter Naomi and the husband Drew standing there. I'll never forget it. You look at the life and you say, wow, how precious, how particular. The nurse comes and sits down and goes through everything and she says, now Naomi, you got a bracelet on your wrist. Jude's got a bracelet on his wrist. If anybody takes that baby away from this floor, as soon as they get onto the elevator to go to another floor, you'll hear an alarm ring in your room. We'll hear one ring in our office. And my daughter's face fell. The glory of a new life was suddenly dimmed by the tragedy of depraved human behavior. And one day, we'll all come to that moment of being called home. And the Apostle Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all not sleep, but we shall all be changed the moment, the twinkling of an eye the last trumpet. I close with these two little illustrations that I hope will be meaningful for you. A few years ago, my father-in-law, Lindsay Reynolds, passed away. He was one of the most amazing men that I knew. He was really like a dad to me. He was a chemical engineer by training, brilliant man, loved the hymns. From the moment he found he had cancer till he died, it was four months. Shock. And I went and spent time with him. My, my, my wife, Margie, we spent a lot of time with him. I loved my father-in-law very much. He always called me ravioli. <laughs> <clears throat> he never had a son. And I went and sat down and held his hand and we chatted of all the great things. And he said, I'm so sorry, son. This has come so suddenly and so on. I had to go away for some meetings, and the day he was going, he'd been silent for a few days. He was 85, been married 63 years, I believe. He'd been silent, shriveled down to a bag of bones. Didn't say a word. Then his eyes opened, three of his four daughters around the bed, his wife around the bed there. They all said this, he opened his eyes, looked to the heavens, and he said the word, amazing. That's amazing. 
Then he looked at his wife and said, Jean, I love you. And he was gone. Jean, I love you. And he was gone. What a way to say goodbye to this world. The glory and amazement of what you see and bidding goodbye for having honored the love of your life. All of this only makes sense if you are created by God, if you're redeemed by him and ultimately resurrected for a future hope. And so the songwriter says, but just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory, finding it home. As a traveling man, no word means more to me as an abstract sounding word, but with all the concrete reality as the word home. You see, C.S. Lewis is right. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That is the hope that God gives to you and to me. And so the three links, the miracle of creation, the miracle of redemption, and the miracle of the resurrection. You know who knew it best? Lazarus. You can go to Larnaca today and see his grave. He became a bishop there. Do you know what it says on his grave? Lazarus, bishop of Larnaca, twice dead, friend of Jesus. I'm glad he's not just your friend and mine, he's also our savior. And as a friend of mine used to say, if we don't see you in the future, we'll see you in the pasture. God bless you. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.